This is a conversation with Dr. Kiran Hilia. She's an assistant professor of psychology at the Herat Wat University in Dubai and a psychologist at the Open Mind Center. She has a PhD and master's in forensic psychology from the University of New South Wales, Australia, and has experience working across clinical forensic and organizational psychology. She also has experience working for the New South Wales Department of Justice. In this episode, we discuss forensic psychology, free will, and morality with a case study on whether Adolf Hitler was pure evil or mentally ill, mental health, and the importance of Barack Obama's name on his election campaign. This is no time. If you like what you see, do subscribe on YouTube, follow on Spotify, or rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. This project takes a lot of my time, money, and effort. You might start seeing some gray hairs really soon. So if you'd like to see it continue, then do consider supporting it on Patreon. For other forms of love and support, as always, you can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter or follow me personally. And now, it's no time. So when someone mentions forensics, the first image that comes to mind is of the CSI TV shows, the new Sherlock Holmes. We have this Indian TV show called CID that's been going on for 20 years. And the images of this scientist is really geeky hair, strands coming out. And he's brushing off the dust from like a hat they found to find fingerprints or analyzing like a hair strand that they found on the victim. But that's a common misconception with forensic science and forensic psychology. So let's start with what is forensic psychology? Right. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so forensic psychology is the application of psychological theory and principles to the legal system. Um, so it's anything relating to law. And so you can have people who are involved in the criminal investigation side of things, um, but often we might think of it uh, is sort of from a profiling perspective um, and there's not actually uh, good research evidence behind profiling. So where I'm from in Australia, we don't actually have people who call themselves profilers. Um, so you have it, people who work in that sort of area of the law. You have people who will work with police officers in terms of how to conduct their investigations in light of what the psychological evidence suggests. You'll have people who work with victims of crime. You'll have people who advise um, governments and politicians on uh, if they want to make changes to legislation, how that um, is going to impact behavior from a psychological perspective. You'll have people who look at um, how you can implement wider uh, community-wide initiatives if your goal is to um, reduce uh, kids um, not going to school and getting involved in like juvenile delinquency type behaviors. You'll have people who are doing research on um, risk assessments when working with offenders. Uh, but yeah, a forensic psychologist is anyone who takes um, psychological theory and applies it to some problem um, within the legal system. When you work with the New South Wales Department of Justice, like you mentioned, you work mm. with the juvenile offenders or really serious offenders as well. Right. What kind of techniques or what kind of practices have you used to build trust with offenders and victims? Right. Um, because I'd imagine it's much harder than talking to a normal person. Yeah. How do you build that rapport with them so that you can get the information you need, especially with offenders, actually? Yeah, well, certainly. Um, so forensic psychologists, we're often dealing with what we call mandated clients. And these are people who are seeing you because they've been told that they have to. Uh, so they're not seeing you because they want to. And so then you are working with a different population compared to if you are a uh, clinical psychologist where someone's seeing you because they know that 
um, the way that they think or the way that they behave is creating problems for them. And so uh, they, they're motivated to try to address that. You sometimes don't get that um, with the type of populations that we work with. So when it comes to building rapport, it depends on what your role is. So when I was um, working in Corrective Services, New South Wales, and I was doing assessments of serious offenders, my role was just to assess them, um, to identify what um, level of risk they were at at reoffending, um, and to identify what their treatment needs are or their criminogenic needs is what we call it. And criminogenic need is um, some area that is directly related to their criminal offending behaviour and then devising a treatment plan um, based on the programs that we had available in corrective services for them to engage in that treatment plan for the rest of their sentence. So my report followed them around um, for the rest of their sentence, both in custody and when they're out in the community. Um, and so because of that, they uh, were aware of the pretty serious implications of my report. Um, and so one issue that can come up and a rule that we had in corrective services was talking with them about um, potential criminal behaviour that they had engaged in but not been caught or convicted for because in order to really understand what their treatment needs were, you needed to have a good understanding of what their offending behaviour looked like. For example, like how much it escalated over a period of time or how frequently they engaged in certain behaviour. So they needed to trust me that they could talk about those aspects when maybe they hadn't um, suffered the, the legal consequences for that without worrying about me then reporting them and then they would be charged with additional offences. So we had a rule around, you know, you can talk to me about these other offences just don't give me enough information that makes it identifiable in terms of the date that you committed it or the location, the name of the victim um, and all of that because my role is to understand how that um, integrates into your wider pattern of offending behaviour. My goal is not to pin you for additional offences. Um, and I can understand that people might have issues with that where it's, well, if you know that someone's done this other offence, particularly if it's a serious one, then are you morally obligated to or ethically obligated to report it? Um, and then you have to weigh that up where, well, if I'm doing that and then, then they're not going to feel comfortable reporting things to us, so we're not going to have a good idea of their offending patterns and therefore can't devise an effective treatment plan that's going to target um, their offending behaviour and actually reduce their recidivism and therefore make the community safer. So it comes down to these questions of like the purpose of what you're doing. Is your goal to um, punish people and this sort of retribution focus of you did something bad, therefore you need to experience some negative consequences for that? Or is it more of a rehabilitation focus where if, um, if we understand what's going on for you and we can help this person to modify the way that they think or the way that they behave so that they can go back out into society and make a valuable contribution to that. Because most offenders who you're going to work with are going to re-enter the society at some point. Most people are not given a life sentence for their behaviours. So, you know, that comes down to these sort of philosophical deep questions around 
what yeah. society views the purpose of some of these um, programs uh, that we that we offer. And I've had people who don't agree with uh, the sort of work that I did, and we and would say, well, why don't you just lock them up and throw away the key? You know, um, are these people worth rehabilitating? Um, do they deserve a second chance? Uh, and people have to make that decision for themselves. But as a psychologist, uh, in order to work as a psychologist, I think you have to believe that people can change um, and that any behavior that people engage in, there's a rationale for why they did that. It's serving some purpose. Uh, and so if you can address that and provide alternative ways for them to maybe achieve the goals that they have um, or modify the way that they think about some of these goals that they've got, then ultimately are you helping to make the community safer? But it's a, it's a deep existential question. <laughs> we are going to explore all of those questions. I've lost my leg. <laughs> we are going to explore all of those. Um, but just before that, I just want to, to wrap up this part. I would imagine for them to admit crimes that they've done in the past as well to someone like you who they feel belongs to the authority or is obviously on the other side. But your your role is to become their friend or their confidant or in, if it's a juvenile offender, maybe a motherly figure. So get just get them to just talk about themselves and feel comfortable in your presence. So is there anything particular that you used uh, to maybe role play or maybe get get them on a level of comfort where they can talk about their past? Um, I think it's more about being as transparent as possible with them about what your role is. So when you talk about being like a motherly figure, that's something we kind of actively choose to avoid doing because then you are creating what we call like multiple relationships and you're blurring those right. professional boundaries and then that can create issues on its own of people asking for you to do small favors and especially when people are starting out in this type of work they might feel that kind of um pressure to oh like I want this person to like me um and so therefore if I cooperate with this little thing um but often it's well now that you've agreed to that little thing then that gives them leverage or opportunity to ask you to do some slightly bigger thing and then some slightly bigger thing and it um you can end up being in a situation that's really very problematic for you from an ethical as well as a professional standpoint. It can get you in a lot of trouble. And we have had instances of that. Um, so the, the approach that I take with um, offenders when I am working with them is being clear about why it is that they are seeing me. So I do tell them, you know, the purpose of this is I am going to be making notes um, and I'm going to be writing a report. You will be able to look at that report. I will go through that with you. You are welcome to answer any question. You're welcome to refuse to answer any question. Um, but if you do, I also have to note that when you have uh, refused to answer a question. And my report uh, is not just going to be based on the information you give me. It's going to be based on information that um, I get from the police reports and witness statements and the judge's sentencing remarks. And uh, if I get their permission, I will interview um, often over the phone members of their family uh, or a partner. Um, I will be talking with security staff here in the prison or 
the drug and alcohol worker that you're working with. So we call that triangulating your data um, because obviously they might have a motivation to present themselves in a particular way to so as to look better. Um, and so you're letting them know, look, uh, I'm not the way that this works is if you tell me this information um, and I find that that conflicts with something else, then I'm also going to tell you, you told me A, but then when I read the um, victim's impact statement, they talk about B, which suggests that you were a lot more violent in that offence than you were indicating. Do you want to give me any comment on that? So um, being open with them about all of that. And so I'm not I'm not their friend, um, but I do often I will pitch it in regards to, look, um, a lot of the time before when you've talked about all of this, it's been in the context of preparing your defense with your lawyer. Um, now we just want to understand what's been going on for you and help you identify how everything that goes on in your life relates to this stuff and what has contributed to you being where you are now. Um, and some of them appreciate that opportunity to talk about things and just get that understanding for themselves. Um, other people will be quite actively hostile towards you throughout the entire thing. Um, and that's sort of part of the job, um, being aware of that. Now, we're also uh, encouraged and part of our training is about being clear on what your boundaries are. And so if someone is being quite aggressive or intimidating, then I might say, look, you're clearly not in the mood for the interview today, or I don't appreciate the language that you're using. So I'm going to end the interview now. Um, and then be, and I'll have to make it, you know, if you've threatened me or something or made some vague threat against your cellmate or something, I'm going to have to report that to the security staff. So when they know that, oh, <laughs> um, you know, she's not going to keep any of my secrets for me, um, then it's, but you, you know, the way that this works is up to you to, to determine that for yourself. This can be a very, um, I wouldn't say pleasant, but in, enlightening um, experience for some of them. Um, and a lot of them have gone through really awful, traumatic um, experiences throughout their life. There's very regularly histories of abuse or neglect um, or uh, you know, lack of resources, lack of options made available to them, the normalization of violent behavior or crime in general. Uh, and so for a lot of them, you go, well, of course you ended up where you are. Like all of these other things were kind of, the cards were very much stacked against you. Um, and that's not fair, but then it's up to you to decide, um, even when things aren't fair, you still need to take responsibility for the choices that you make. Um, and what are the choices that you want to make moving forward? Do you want your life to remain in the way that it is? Where where you are now is probably going to continue to be repeated. Or do you want your life to look different? Um, but, yeah, I think it's, it's accepting of the fact, uh, and I do tell my students, you know, forensic psychology, if you're someone who've, who wants to be liked by your clients, forensic psychology is probably not um, <laughs> the area that you want to be working with because it is you want you want people to respect you and trust you, but you've also got to be clear on, on what your boundaries are, that I am not your 
mum, I am not your friend. Um, I am a professional who's going to work very hard um, to help you. And that, again, depends on your role. Like as an assessor, I'm not treating this person. I'm assessing them to then formulate a treatment plan and put together recommendations and then that gets handed over to the treatment team. Um, your relationship does get different when you are part of the treatment team. And so then you want someone to feel comfortable sometimes sitting with very unpleasant emotions and memories and to challenge their own style of thinking. So from a boundaries perspective, being an assessor, I think is an easier um, role in terms of being clear on what your boundaries are. Whereas in some of these treatment programs, they're very intensive. You can be working with someone for 12 months where you're seeing them three times a week in a separated housing unit. If you're working with sex offenders, for example, they're all housed together for their safety, but as well as to create that therapeutic community um, so they, they can be sharing information with each other. And they have to build that trust with each other that this, the information that they share is not going to be gossiped about when that person gets transferred to a different prison or unit or something. Um, and so there is a lot of trust there. Uh, but I guess um, broadly offenders typically see psychologists as you guys are one of the good guys, you know, you're not the security staff who are keeping us locked up in our cells. At the end of the day, you're here because you want to um, make some positive impact. Uh, because psychologists, I think in order for you to work as a psychologist, you need to be able to see um, the potential for change and the potential for good in people. Um, I don't think you could do this sort of work if you didn't see that. Um, but you are working with people who have gone through a lot. And so it's it's still entirely appropriate for you to acknowledge that and go like, that sounds awful, um, without blurring those boundaries in terms of what your role is. Did you find anything surprising in your, I'm not sure how much the Australian government might allow you to reveal, but <laughs> anything surprising in terms of the demographics or the relationship between the victim and the offender, time of the day that was particularly <laughs> dangerous, um, alcohol, drug intake, was there anything surprising or was it all as you would expect? Uh, I mean, in terms of the, the common experiences that offenders will have, uh, you do frequently see drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, physical abuse in their childhood, often sexual abuse. Uh, I think people underestimate the impact that neglect on a child has on their development. You know, psychologically, that can often have the largest negative impacts on a child because it um, stunts their emotional and social and um cognitive development uh, and nutrition as well. So even their physical development can um, be stunted there. Uh, when it comes to victims of crime, uh, I mean, there's certainly a lot of research that shows that when it comes to female victims, particularly of violent crime, women and girls are far more likely to be um, physically or sexually assaulted by someone who they know. Whereas men, um, when it comes to something like an assault or murder, they're more likely to um, be the victim of someone who they don't know. Uh, and when it comes to female perpetrators, they often have a far more traumatic history compared to male offenders. Um, and so you see this 
re-victimization cycle that comes up amongst um, both female perpetrators and female victims. Uh, and that I find sort of very sad that um, because of experiences that they've had, then they start to, you know, if you've been sexually abused by a family member, someone who you are meant to trust completely and they violated that, you know, how then do you trust anybody else? And do you learn that to be sexual kind of keeps you safe and then you continue those relationships with people and then you're exploited um, by other people in later relationships? Um, do you try to cope through drugs or alcohol to kind of numb the pain and then in order to finance that, you go into prostitution or you do theft or something and now um, it spirals and it gets really uh, out of hand very quickly um, and it can feel like for a lot of victims and perpetrators that the world is kind of set up against them, that they're constantly disappointed um, and it's acknowledging that and going yeah, there's all of these things contribute to the decisions that you make and it's um, how can we expect people to try to cope with those types of things if they're not given those supports? People are going to try and cope as best they can and drug and substance abuse is often the coping strategy that people know uh, and if they don't have other access to other resources, um, or they don't feel like they can share their experiences with people who are going um, to be respectful of that information and not use it against them later. Um, that's that's really difficult. So uh, it's it's um, important to recognize. I think the um, the sympathetic situation that a lot of these individuals have been in, um, and I might then get that not so much thrown in my face, um, but I have had offenders who will go like, what would you know? You know, you're, especially when I started out um, relatively young, I'm young, I'm female, I'm middle-class, I'm white. Um, I haven't had a lot of those experiences that they've had. And it's okay to acknowledge that and go, yeah, you're right. I haven't had those same experiences as you. So I can, maybe I understand theoretically the impact that it has but I haven't gone through that same emotional trauma that you have. Um, and if you, uh, you know, I'd feel very privileged for you to um, trust me to share that information with me and to um, walk me through the impact that you think that that's had on you and I will give you my thoughts on, on how I think that might have contributed to what's been going on for you as well. Um, so, yeah, you're not asking them to talk about these things to make them feel bad, but to help them understand how all of these things have related to each other. Because if there is a cycle, the goal is to work out what are some strategies that we can use to get you out of that. Um, and as many different strategies as we can identify, the more empowered you're going to be to get yourself out of that because it's not fair that you had to deal with all of that. But this is your life and the, the person who has ownership to take um, responsibility to redirect that into something that you want it, that's up to you. And we can give you those resources and help you in that. Um, but ultimately, that's your choice. And 
they might hear all that and go, screw you. No. Um, and that's fine. You go, sometimes this message takes a while to settle in or they're not going to hear it if it comes from me, but they might have a session with someone else who poses it a different way or they have their own background. Um, and so from on that note, I think it's also important that we focus on um, diversifying um, psychologists because uh, psychology is a very, it's a very Western science. And so most psychologists do look like me. Um, and even, even in forensic psychology, most practicing forensic psychologists are female. And that in and of itself creates some interesting dynamics. Sorry, why do you think that is? I think, um, and because, and it is interesting because um, most research forensic psychi- psychologists are men. Um, and you can look at issues around, you know, systemic sexism or um, implicit sexism in the way that academia works and that type of stuff. But I think also, you know, psychology is one of those caring roles, um, especially if you are practicing. Uh, And so just as there's a a female um, skew when it comes to other caring uh, jobs like nursing and social work and teaching, it's the same thing, I think, with psychology. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we do need more male, um, forensic psychologists, uh, but also to have a more culturally and ethnically diverse, um, uh, population of forensic psychologists is also good because they are going to bring, um, different experiences and perspectives, but even just to be able to provide services in another language other than English is going to be good. I've had to work with um, interpreters and that's been interesting because then I've had to kind of brief the, the interpreter before going in um, that we're going to be talking about some pretty intense stuff and I've had occasions where the interpreter has been crying <laughs> while the, the gentleman is talking and I and I thought this must look like a very strange image for him <laughs> because she's sitting there crying and I'm there totally nonplussed because I have no idea what's being said right. <laughs> here. Um, and so uh, that is obviously not an ideal situation because you are going to miss out on rapport building and, and important dynamics if you have this third party there. But that's how we got around issues of if you've got an offender who only speaks Vietnamese and his English is not good and I don't speak Vietnamese, so we have to bring in an interpreter. Um, but if you had... Uh, a Vietnamese speaking psychologist who was able to work with this person. Um, it just, uh, to make services as available and as, as accessible to people, um, I think is, is an important focus. And I think different psychological associations and societies are working on that. Um, but that's, uh, something that we, we do need to keep working on. So any men who are watching Forensic Become psychology. a forensic yeah, psychologist. It is hiring. It's a, fascinating work. <laughs> There's a lot of demand for them. <laughs> uh, and and also, I mean, because uh, I mean, uh, for, psychology is a Western science um, in general. Forensic psychology is even more niche, um, and so it does tend to be if you're looking for a job, the countries that. Um, you tend to go to if you want to work in forensic psychology is Australia, the US, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, all Western countries. Um, 
I'm here in the UAE and uh, I have been here six and a half years uh, and it was the first few years I was working in organizational psychology but after about two and a half years I thought I really want to um, be trying to build forensic psychology and raise its profile and people's awareness of the role that it can play and I'm still in the process of doing that you know it's very much in its infancy here so um, I know of maybe two jobs where they're like specifically looking for someone with a forensic psychological background um, and so then I tell my students who are interested in this, it's like, well, think about where it is that you're going to want to work. And therefore, depending on where you're from, does that mean also looking at visa um, considerations and, and all of these things? So um, I think that will change over time um, and it will become more established. Um, and so then more job opportunities will be there. But then that kind of factors in then on who you typically tend to attract in those types of roles as well. Okay, so let's address the interesting, juicy, philosophical questions you had posed <laughs> in the beginning. So let's talk about free will. And before that, let's just start with, I would imagine someone in your line of work has worked with really serious offenders. And I would go as far as saying you have worked with people who have done real evil. So is it is it hard for you to then switch off what a person has done or what type of personality they are. At times you've mentioned they've been quite hostile. You might not even like them. Or let's, let me phrase it in a way that is it important for you to switch it off so that you do your work well or do you always need to keep that at the back of your mind so you know what the person is capable of and you can design a treatment plan for them? Yeah, I think it is important to be mindful of it if they are repeating some unhelpful patterns with you. Uh, so, you know, if, if you know from their offending history that they're quite manipulative, um, in how they try to get people to potentially do things for them. And then you might be aware of, ah, you know, I'm start they're they're doing the same thing here or they're, they're testing me a bit. Um, or if you bring something up and then they react quite strongly to that going, oh, I've kind of pushed a nerve here. Um. So it is good to be mindful of that, but you're right around in order for you to develop rapport with someone, it's it's being able to separate out their offending behavior and that whilst what they did can be really, really awful, um, that singular thing does not define every aspect of them as a person. Uh, because also if you do do that, then you're just promoting a lot of shame um, and self-loathing. And this probably, again, if your goal is on rehabilitation, then they're probably not going to be particularly motivated to want to change their behavior because then it'll feel like, well, this is just who I am. So therefore, like that sense of like determinism that I, there's no point trying to change it because this is part of my bi biology or my genes or something. Um, so yeah, I think it comes back to that issue of psychologists in order to, to work in what we do, we need to think that people can change in one form or another. Now, the way that that might happen, it might be for some people, it's, you know, there is a biological component in terms of your impulse control um, or something. So uh, medications might be an important part of that person's um, treatment plan. But even then, they're the ones who have to consent to taking that medication. So they've still got to 
see the benefits of doing that. And particularly if sometimes these medications have side effects, they've got to weigh up do the benefits of doing this outweigh the potential negatives that I might experience. Um, yeah, so I think it's uh, it's all of those things. And that's what I find really interesting about psychology, that there's um, this person, there's a, it's a puzzle and it's working out how all of these different components come together to influence the way that they are interacting with me right now. And are they doing it because they want to test me because they have been betrayed or let down by people before? And so they're wanting to establish, am I going to do the same thing that everybody else has done or am I going to stick around a bit more for them? Um, you go, well, that makes a lot of sense that someone might choose to do that. Or are they doing it because um, this is their sense of masculinity um, and so because I'm a woman then they need to be aggressive in order to assert dominance or something. Right. So um, you do need to be comfortable talking about uh, quite difficult traumatic experiences, um, not just in terms of that person's own experiences but also what their offending behaviour involved. And so the risk of vicarious trauma is quite high for um, forensic psychologists when you're talking about this stuff um, and compassion fatigue as well. Um, so it's also you being mindful of your own self-care. Uh, and so there are going to be psychologists who go, you know, I can't work with a particular type of offender. So I have colleagues who, you know, they're female colleagues and then before they had kids they were comfortable working with sex offenders but once they had kids they weren't comfortable working with that population anymore. Yeah, and you go, okay, that's good that you're aware of what your own limits are because if that's going to impact on your work quality as well. If you can't work with certain people, then you shouldn't be working with certain people. And then other people, it might be certain aspects of a, of, of a particular individual. So I had an, an offender who did something... <laughs> Sorry. It's the tension yeah, in the room. I had an offender and I can't share sort of details of what he did because it was quite a unique offence and so you could probably Google it and, and identify this person pretty quickly. Um, but a very, uh, just an awful offence against a child and um, he was meant to, he had a serious drug and alcohol problem uh, which we thought was relevant to his criminal behaviour so that needed to be addressed and the drug and alcohol worker came to me and said, I can't work with this guy. Um, I know that there's it's a group and he'll be in there with 10 other guys, but I know what he did and I know it's going to impact on how I'm going to interact with him. I can't have him in my group. I like I can't work with this person. Um, and that was, uh, you know, a little bit frustrating because it's, well, she was the only drug and alcohol worker in the prison, so he can't start his treatment until he got transferred to a different facility. But again, at least she was open about setting her boundaries because that's important for your own self-care. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I just reminded, I got reminded of this quote by Friedrich Nietzsche who had said that those who work with monsters should be careful that they don't become monsters themselves. Mm. because if you gaze into the abyss the abyss gazes back into you right which is pretty pretty along That's the lines dark. yeah <laughs> he was a dark person 
<laughs> so from what what you mentioned then it seems like that is true then so even if you're working in this field and you're exposed to so much darkness or so many damaged people you need to be conscious of not letting that seep into you even subconsciously into mm. your personality or your work yeah yeah um and so it is about being aware of what your own triggers are and i think that's why i mean having supervision in any area of psychology is important but i think um particularly so uh, when it comes to forensic psychology and especially when you're starting out um, because you might not realize that things are triggering you until you are working with someone and you're realizing like what's going on for me right now and and the way that that expresses itself for people is going to be different for some people it's just feeling really burnt out and that compassion fatigue that you just stop caring um, because it's too emotionally draining for you for others it might be nightmares or difficulties sleeping for others it's sort of emotional eating and so they're noticing they're gaining weight and um so uh, psychologists also to to engage in their own self-care need to be uh, have good self-awareness about themselves as well um and i put this down to luck probably more than anything else but um when i was working with corrective services i didn't have that experience of uh someone where i was like no i can't work with this person so i kind of i was the person where of well if i can't work with them kieran can <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I'm sure staying in the industry long enough, I'm probably going to come across someone where, you know, what they did is going to remind me of some aspect or really trigger some response in me. And then, um, it's dealing with that. And I have to say corrective services as an, in, as an organization is very good about recognizing that amongst its staff and giving you that support and, um, having you feel like, you know, if you can't work with someone, share that with your supervisor and we will cope with that. Either he gets allocated to someone else or, you know, that part of his treatment gets put on hold um, until he's transferred to another facility and another part of his treatment can start um, in the meantime. Uh, but, you know, there's uh, we spend a long time getting trained um, and so if someone burns out, that's a cost to the organization as well, having to bring in someone new. Interesting. Okay, so let's go back to exploring free will. Mm -hmm. Let's take a case study. Okay. First, so just a caveat before that, I'm not going to be taking people who have committed petty crime because it's just a generalization. This is unscientific. But what I feel is if someone steals, then larger cases, you can justify that out of their circumstance. They're looking to support themselves or a family for sure. Even murder, although the numbers start uh, dropping down now, but I think some murders can also be justified as a sort of retaliation or self-defense maybe. Yep. So let's take an extreme example just to okay. see how far we can push this. One example that comes to mind is a school shooter. Why I would put them there is because personally I feel no, no kind of circumstance can justify you shooting a school. But let's not even take... So that would be one example, but let's go for the most extreme one possible just to see how far we can push this. So let's take Adolf Hitler. Ah. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. <laughs> I think both you and me are in agreement that Hitler was a terrible person. Uh, and if not terrible, then at least he was he was responsible for really terrible deeds and responsible for the deaths of many people, millions of people. So what I want to now check is, do you think he was born evil was he inherently evil 
or was he a product of his circumstance or is the nature was a nurture debate but also whether someone on his level to be able to conceive of um atrocities atrocities of that level you have to be somewhere in a spectrum of mental illness or you need to have some kind of a flaw or he is incurable he was an evil person who acted out of free will Uh-huh. Okay. So, um I think and it's particularly when it comes to really heinous offenses, um we can it's very easy for us to get uh have that emotional response of just how awful that is and yes, so I think we can all agree that what he did was awful. Um in terms of what the research suggests, uh and I always kind of go back to psychology is a science. Um and so the the advice that we give other people um in our work and the way that we devise and structure what it is that we do is driven by what the science tells us um and what the science tells us is that it's pretty much always a combination of nature versus nurture so someone might have inherited certain um genetic or biological traits that might predispose them to behaving in a particular way but in order for that to happen that needs to combine with environmental factors that either encourage or reinforce certain types of behaviors or it's so stressful that they have to resort to certain types of behaviors in order to cope with that so if we take the example of Hitler and it's interesting that you bring that one up because uh when I was at university um I did a course on um German history and one of the um assignments that we had to write an essay on was uh would um World War II have happened if Hitler hadn't been born and my opinion was no I don't think it would have happened um and here's why and the German professor who taught it he sent me back the assignment and he said i fundamentally disagree with your arguments but you argued it well so i got a good mark so what was the that. summary of your arguments just my, my summary <laughs> was <quite> was <laughs> i was saying like you um in order for particularly like the holocaust to happen you needed someone um you know what hitler did was he was able to um really take advantage of the political instability that was going on in germany at the time um and use that to advance his agenda. Um now in terms of you know where that came from and mind comp from this idea of like the pure race. Um and so then certain people because it wasn't just Jewish people that he was targeting, it was gypsies, it was people with disabilities, um or terminal illnesses, it was anyone who was seen as like a burden on society. Um and where all of that came from then you can have a long discussion around that um but his own experiences married up with also you know this very strong rigidity in his thinking um absolute focus and determination um on what he set out charm in order to engage people um and take advantage of uh normalizing um these long historical prejudices towards certain groups in society so if you in a position of power 
normalize that, then you give other people permission to engage in that sort of thinking. Whereas if you're very clear as a leader and like that is sort of not acceptable, people might have it, but they know like that's not going to get me anywhere. So there's no point in even engaging in that, but he didn't do that. So then you're, it, um, it brings out then these less attractive, um, elements in other people as well, because, oh, because he's giving me permission, then I can sort of explore my own deep-seated prejudices as well. Sorry, so I, I imagine that your professor, his arguments were that the ideology that was perpetrating at that point in Germany, Hitler was just a vessel for it. And you it didn't need that cult of personality to cause the Holocaust. It, would have, it was an inevitability is what his arguments That were. was, yeah, um, that was his perspective on it. Um, but I respected the fact that, um, and I've continued with that with my students, that as, as long as you can back up your arguments, I might not have to personally agree with them, but if I can see the merit in the arguments that you're making, because these are hypotheticals, so we're never going to know for sure. Um, but if you can cite evidence um, that validates the arguments that you're trying to make, then you will, you know, that's how science works. Um, and until we then get other information that sort of proves otherwise, and again, that's the benefit of science. Ideally, we are not rigid to the theories or the hypotheses that we have. If we see that, oh, the evidence is suggesting that this isn't true, okay, so I will modify my understanding of the world. Um, so, yeah, I would say with someone like Hitler, but with pretty much anybody, there needs to be that combination of um, a predisposition there, either in their temperament or their thinking style, but also who you grow up with is going to shape any prejudices or biases that you have um, and what sort of behavior you consider appropriate or acceptable. And then you have the wider society in general. And then you have the opportunities that will present itself. Um, all of these things are going to to come together. So, and there's also studies, have you heard of like the Zimbardo prison study? Oh, classic, classic <laughs> if um, in terms of psychology, but this was uh, Philip Zimbardo in Stanford University um, uh, had a study where he was devising like a fake prison in the university. And so he recruited male students um, to participate and then he randomly allocated them to whether they were prisoners or um, security staff. Um, and actually there was a movie made about this maybe two years ago um, if anyone wants to look at it. But if you Google or put on YouTube Zimbardo prison study, heaps will come out. Um, but through the course of that, um, this was kind of seen as like a disaster from an ethical perspective of a study um, in that things deteriorated really quickly. But what was interesting was he didn't, when he was allocating people, because what it ended up happening was the, the boys who became the prison officers became very abusive towards the boys who were playing with the prisoners. And the prisoners became very... Um, what we call learned helplessness. So they just allowed themselves to be abused over time and it got so bad that they had to stop the study. Um, but even Zimbardo, he sort of took on the role of like the chief of security and he was noticing 
that his own behavior was changing. Sorry, so just to get it right, something about the role itself was mm. creating those traits in them right. that they didn't exhibit in a normal. Yeah, sense. yeah, because yeah. he didn't he didn't allocate their their roles based on any pre existing psychological traits. They were randomly allocated, um, and so it goes. Oh, but and you know, and part of that is then, is it media and what we see around how you're meant to act when you're in that type of role and you're meant to be intimidating and aggressive and exert a lot of force and disrespect and blah 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 um but it's also this idea of I have permission to engage in these behaviors and so some people would argue that anybody is kind of capable of doing some very bad things if a situation calls for it sufficiently. So if you're in the middle of a civil war, for example, then you might steal from a shop in order to survive. Uh, whereas, you know, if things were functioning normally, you never would have done that. And we see movies and people have to resort to really quite um, violent, horrible things um, in order to save a person that they love um, or get access to resources that they yeah. need. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's the huge spectrum of, um, human behavior that we are capable of really, really good things, but we're also capable of really atrocious things. You know, humans from a species perspective, we're awful to each other. Um, but we're also phenomenally kind to each other and we will sacrifice a lot for each other um if the circumstances are right but we're also capable of genocide um and so there's never a singular explanation for these really complex behaviors and outcomes it's an unfortunate combination of things that come together and so what's important for us is to learn from that and no, which is why, like, the United Nations was created um, to, to go, like, we need some sort of international body to say, look, you know, certain things, that's um, a war crime or that is a breach of human rights. There needs to be some international body that can um, hold people and countries accountable for that. And even that, but everything is created by humans, and so no system is is perfect <laughs> either. Um, but we need to be constantly striving towards um, improvement, and so seeing what the difficulties or the problems are, and and trying to collectively work out solutions because we are very capable of really amazing things um, as humans, and so we have to be mindful of our uh, darker impulses and how other people might try to exploit that for their own agenda um, and what systems can we put in place to minimize the risk of that okay so bringing back to hitler mm -hmm. yeah hitting more hitler talk. <laughs> just to just to use the case study yeah. <laughs> I, I you didn't mention that we should try not uh putting labels or singular uh, definitions to things but let's say if he was your patient or he was your client yeah. would you classify him more towards suffering from a mental illness or would he would you just treat him as a bad person who did bad things and didn't try to understand where he came from 
Yeah, I think people are are very capable of doing very bad things and that it's not going to be related at all to a, a mental illness. Um, and I think that uh, I can understand the question. Um, I think that can contribute to a sense of stigma around people with mental illness that um, it's only if you have a mental illness that you must be capable of something that bad. Whereas, you know, with most of the offenders that I've worked with, they don't meet criteria for a specific mental illness or even an unspecified one. Um, So, uh, as I said, you know, we have a huge um, uh, spectrum in terms of human behavior. So in terms of, and, and I must admit, I'm definitely not an expert on Hitler, the person, um, but from what I do know, I don't see evidence of a um, particular mental illness with him. Can I push back on that? Just, sure. Uh, so the argument against that would be that to be able to conceive of killing and torturing so many people and justify that, you have to be somewhere on the spectrum. That would be the argument against that. No sane person can justify taking so many lives. I guess then you could you argue that for every terrorist who has... You could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I uh, the way that sort of mental and also that sort of raises interesting questions around sort of how we diagnose and label certain mental illnesses. So is it because I can't think of a specific label where he has a cluster of symptoms that would meet criteria for a delusional disorder or some other type of psychotic disorder or um ptsd or depression like i can't because i can't give it a nice neat label then he doesn't have one um some people would say you know that's a bit too um reductionist in its approach of mental illness um and so what are we meaning by that and is it that you know as we learn more about the brain and human behavior we will generate new diagnoses or different understandings of the way the mind works and it might be in 50 years time someone goes oh yes actually Hitler sort of shows this this sort of um, configuration or this cluster of symptoms and so therefore he would meet this new diagnostic label that we've got Um, but I think uh, when you look at um, if you take it to you know the human imagination is is fairly boundless if you look at novels and literature and stuff and people can um generate these really fantastical ideas and these um like awful scenarios and then what does it take for someone to rather than just imagine it or fantasize about it that they choose to actually act on that because they have the resources to do it um and they have the support of other people around them and they have the infrastructure to actually act that out Whereas other people, you know, had they had those things, would they have also made that choice as well? Um, and are you justifying it based on this quite warped, very problematic idea of how um, human society should evolve, for example? Um, that can get, yeah, you go, well, what does that take for someone to go that the ends justify the means that I will kill several million people in this pursuit of this Aryan race type concept of the perfect human race type thing and absolve ourselves of the burden of these other people um, that weigh in on us. You might say, well, that takes a certain degree of, um, of callousness 
Um, but does that in and of itself meet criteria for a mental illness? Um, then you have things like personality disorders, which are a different set as well. So we have, you might say, he shows some quite psychopathic traits in that callousness and manipulative and superficially charming and um, exploitative relationships with other people and um, I don't know if he's sort of, but other traits are like not taking responsibility, so blaming other people, very irresponsible, reckless behavior. And I would say that, yeah, Hitler shows some traits of psychopathy, but there's other traits of psychopathy that he doesn't show. Um, and so a personality disorder is different to a mental illness. Um, and then you have to look at it from a legal perspective as well, where, um, different jurisdictions will define when you have a look at the defense, like not guilty by reason of mental illness, which we have in my home state. And that's very common. Um, but it's not utilized nearly as much as people often think. And they think, oh, it's a get out of jail free card. And you go, no, there's actually a very high standard that you have to meet in order to prove that. But some jurisdictions will explicitly say like personality disorders don't count as, as a, as a mental illness that would justify or that helps to adequately explain someone's behavior because you can have a personality disorder. The idea around the not guilty by reason of mental illness um, defense was this idea that you have either, there's sort of two criteria, either that you have lost control of your own functioning. So someone is in the middle of a psychotic um, episode they don't realize, you know, they lose track of what it is that they're doing. Um, so they don't, they can't account for why they did what they did. Or um, that your mental illness had such a profound impact on your thinking at the time that you didn't realize that what you were doing was wrong. So when I was working in the high security psychiatric, forensic psychiatric hospital, um, in my home state, if you're found not guilty by reason of mental illness, then you become a forensic patient um, and you have to undergo mandatory treatment. And the intensity of that treatment depends on your risks um, and your treatment needs and everything. Um, but most of the people who were in that facility had some sort of psychotic disorder. And so at the time, they might be like, I killed my father because he, his body had been taken over by an alien who was going to harvest my organs while I was sleeping. So I needed to, and it might be either I am killing him because just to, to protect myself or I'm doing it because that will actually free my father from that enslavement. And I, I, and I know you, you chuckle because it's this weird, um, but for some people, you know, like that's, that was their experience. And then you have to go through the whole trauma of when they start to get better, when they're getting medicated and everything, then they have to have a reckoning of I did this to this person that I loved really much uh, a lot because at the time I was so unwell that I didn't realize that what I was doing was wrong. When it comes to a personality disorder, you can't argue either of those two things. It's not like you ever lost functioning over your own body and you knew that what you were doing was wrong. You just didn't prioritize that. You know, right. you go, I know that this is illegal, but that's not my concern at this point because I'm doing it for these other means. Um, so yeah, would he meet criteria for a personality disorder? 
potentially, but again, I don't know enough about him. And there's um, I, there's a Goldman rule as well around um, uh, they sort of discourage. But this is more directed towards psychiatrists, um, but you shouldn't be. Uh, they you know they say that it, professionals should not be. Um, diagnosing sort of public figures if they've never actually um, assessed them themselves. You've spoken about assessing someone like Hitler or even just say a terrorist, for example, and you have provided some commentary on jails as well. So what do you think is the right way to approach it? Like uh, clearly putting them in jail is not the best option. I feel they it's not really a correctional facility. And you've spoken in the past as well about how jails really end up alienating people who have been in there because there's a higher chance of them feeling disenfranchised or disconnected from society when they when they leave and they probably commit crime again and get back in. And then in general, in jail, they might have to associate with uh, a certain group or a tribe for even if they went in for petty crime, but just because they associate with them, they inculcate these ideologies they didn't believe in before. So let's say you... Um, once again, sorry for keep hopping on Hitler, but let's say he was your client. How would you go about um, treating him? Well, I think um, I, it's not that I don't think that there's any place for prisons. I think uh, I think we're always going to have prisons in some form or another. The issue is how much that they are utilised and what it is that we do with people once they are in there. So there is good research looking at, you know, if your goal is to reduce offending behavior. Um, so reducing recidivism, which is reoffending. Um, there's no difference in recidivism rates for those who go to jail and those who get a community sentence. And there's no difference between those who get a longer sentence and those who get a shorter sentence. Um, so putting people in jail for the sake of, um, sort of this punitive punishment, um, has been like might make us feel better in that initial moment like oh you did this awful thing and therefore you get to suffer and we're going to put you in this really unpleasant environment okay but does it actually like what is your driving goal in putting someone in there now i think the role of prisons one of them because it's it's never just a singular thing either um because you have like there's um, are we just being punitive in punishing people? Are we focusing on rehabilitation? Are we trying to um, incapacitate them, so reduce their ability to engage in criminal behaviour by denying them the resources um, for them to be able to do that? Are we um, creating sort of reparations or restoration for someone? So is, are they paying some um, penalty to the victim's family in an effort to restore that. You have more restorative justice concepts in more Indigenous communities where, you know, it's about, you know, their understanding of it of is this person's offended because they've lost that connection to the community through various things and so we need to rebuild that. So it'll be about like what we call circle sentencing and so they're meeting with the victim, the victim's family, other prominent members in the community and it's about making them sort of realize the impact that their behavior has had and, and motiv motivating them to want to change. But also, you know, we will help you do that. So they recognize that as offending comes from a deficit that you're trying to address and maybe not going about that in the best way. But we will help you um, address that deficit better. But it's not like we're going to reject you and force you out of the community completely. Um so one would argue for someone like Hitler, and I have worked with people where you go, yeah, prison's the best place person, the best 
place for this person because they are very dangerous and we need to protect the community and the way to do that is to take that person out um, and to stop them communicating with other people who might be advancing their um, cause. Uh, it can also potentially help as a general deterrent so deter other people from engaging in that behavior because they've seen, oh, well, when he did it and he got caught. The issue with that is that the risk of actually getting caught for certain offenses is often very, very low. So people are like, well, as long as I just do it in an intelligent way, I'll be fine. Um, so that's often not going to be borne out. But if it was someone like him, then, yeah, it would be because also he's very much going to be at risk from everybody else in the prison as well. So he would probably need to be held in solitary confinement, um, both for the safety of everybody else um, and for his safety. Uh, and then it would be um, having him assessed and, and determine some sort of treatment plan to address that. And I guess off the top of my head, it would be about, um, you know, violent offending and the normalization of, of violent behavior um, in order for him to achieve uh, his goals there and working out other, other ways to do that. Um, and it might be, well, that's going to take uh, a very, very, very long time. And so again, some jurisdictions, we can argue, look, this person's coming up to the end of their sentence. I still feel like they're very high risk and we want to put in an application to extend his sentence so that he can continue to get the treatment that he needs um, and uh, continue to protect the community because I don't think, um, I, I still think there's a very high risk that he's going to do something really bad when he gets out. Now that is a um, sort of the, the last resort because the argument is, you know, if we've sentenced someone for a period of time and they've served their sentence, you need to have a very strong argument for why you're saying we need to keep him in for even longer. But, um, you know, my home state has uh, processes by which we can apply, but we have to put together a very strong argument and we have to say this is because, like, we've been doing everything with this person and and it's still not working rather than, oh, we just never got around to helping this guy because they would say, well, then that's your problem. That's not his fault that you didn't do that. Um, so, yeah, I would say for someone like Hitler, it would be very, very tricky and it would take a very long time. Um, and then your concerns would be you would want to isolate him because you would see he's very charming and so we don't want him building up some new um, cult effectively uh, um, or followers in the prison either. So he would be very much on his own there. Um, but, yeah, you've also got to be realistic around do I think that I'm going to completely reform someone like Hitler? No, <laughs> probably not. Um, but is it that uh, we can sort of do our, our best efforts? But other people might say for someone like him, you know, it should be the death penalty. Um, Australia, we don't have the death penalty. Um, and we've had cases where people have been like, maybe we should bring the death penalty back, um, for this case. But overall, as a society, we've decided, no, we don't sort of want state sanctioned killing. Um, other jurisdictions will decide otherwise. 
Um, and so then you're also, you know, so when you ask like, what would I do with him? That's kind of constrained by what the options are available to me in the jurisdiction that I might be working in as well. So again, it comes back, you know, there's none of this stuff happens in a, in a social or political or legal vacuum. There's all these other elements that you have to sort of weigh up there in your decision making. So on a lighter note, you have been Can we please involved. have a lighter note? <laughs> <laughs> you have been involved in theater for a long time yes. in Dubai. So mm. I'm curious, are there any benefits uh, or are there any links between theater and your work in psychology or is it two completely mutually exclus- exclusive events? No, I think um, I think my psychological training, definitely I incorporate that into um, when I'm either working on a character uh, or if I um, am directing uh, actors and it's thinking about who their character is. Um, and I think, uh, you know, when it comes to sort of any anything that involves people is going to involve psychology. So I find it very helpful to sort of, um, and I'm very, I, I'm, my sort of acting process is looking at sort of those internal motivations for why someone is um, choosing to engage in a certain way and that that has to make internal sense within the play that you're doing so I think also that gets in the way of me enjoying some movies uh or other productions where and I'll go wait like everything we've learned about this character up until now is inconsistent with now this behavior that he's doing so it doesn't make sense and people are like oh god Kieran just enjoy the movie (laughs) but it doesn't make sense um so I can't I can't like rationalize that so therefore yeah exactly (laughs) especially not with me but is there a reverse side of it does does theater help you in your work in psychology in any way um I wouldn't say sort of the the process of theater itself, but I would say that um, being involved in theater, that is part of my self-care in just maintaining my own well-being. Theater, um, and I also do dance, but they're two activities that I'm 100% engaged in, so I'm very mindfully engaged in them. Uh, And so it completely takes my mind off of any work um, that I am doing. It allows me to use a very different part of my brain. It's, um, it is more creative, um, and it's collaborative, uh, when you're working with the other actors and the director, um, and the producer and everybody else. So, um, I find, you know, when I finish a rehearsal, I might've been working for 10 hours and then I do a three hour rehearsal. So physically I'm tired, but sort of mentally I feel very, rejuvenated okay so let's move on to our next segment which is about mental health and depression and i'd like to apologize for the barrage of serious segments so far <laughs> probably invite you again we'll just talk about chocolate yeah. rainbows <laughs> unicorns <laughs> just the happy things <laughs> okay so let's talk about mental health let's talk about depression first let's start with what is depression because i think as there has been more awareness about mental health the term has also been thrown around Mm. quite lightly so what is depression yeah um so depression is and you're right we can um people can start to use these terms um in kind of a non-clinical way and so oh my football team lost and i felt really depressed about that 
Yeah. Um, and for some people, you know, a breakup or something might actually trigger a depressive episode. Um, when we're talking about it from a diagnostic perspective, we're talking about like a persistently low mood for a period of at least two weeks. Um, so for most of those days in a period of two weeks. So yeah, if your football team lost and so you're feeling a bit sad about that for the rest of the afternoon, um, then that's not depression. Uh, and for some people having a breakup, they might be quite sad for a couple of days. Um, and, you know, that's an understandable grieving process. Um, and then there'll be someone else who after a breakup uh, can sort of trigger a more serious depressive episode. Um, and so the way that um, depression might express itself uh, can be different for some people and that's what can make it a bit tricky. So particularly when we're looking at men, for example, um, the way that depression might express itself amongst men is a lot of angry outbursts, whereas when we think of depression, we think of someone who's very like, withdrawn and sad and spontaneously crying and we do see that but you can also see it in terms of people getting very agitated very quickly um but it's this the underlying sort of um sense of self-doubt or low sense of self-worth or a sense of hopelessness about the future so this sort of what's the point sort of questions will come up um no one cares about me, uh, life is always going to be like this, uh, it's just so hard, so they're exhausted. Um, and then some people will sleep more, some people will sleep less, some people will eat more, some people will eat less, um, some people will withdraw from social interactions, other people will engage in more social activities because maybe that involves drinking alcohol and the alcohol is a way for them to kind of self-medicate and make these really unpleasant feelings go away so the distinction is time largely i mean it's is it possible to have a very short de uh, depressive episode or you're saying two weeks is then yeah you i mean in terms of the dsm so the diagnostic statistical manual of um, mental illnesses which the american psychiatric association devised and certainly like it is considered like the bible um of uh mental health but not everyone agrees with the dsm um but the, the diagnostic criteria is that it's a period of two weeks or more um, because then it would be looking at – because the risk is you don't want to pathologize normal sadness either um, and that it's okay to be upset about something and it doesn't mean that you have a clinically severe problem. Now, people might be um, diagnosed as having depression, but we have – mod uh, um fairly uh you have the severe depression um and then you have more moderate and then mild cases so that can look quite different but the idea is that it has been sustained for a period of time and a lot of the time people will come to us because you know it is confusing and is is this normal is this not will i get over let me see and so when you actually when someone presents at a mental health clinic it's often that they've been depressed for quite a substantially longer period than that two-week time frame. But the idea is to sort of pick a time where you would say that this is problematic enough and, and chronic enough that this is something that the person might need additional support to try to cope with. 
but not so short that we end up diagnosing every second person with depression. It's very commonly heard that depression rates are rising, especially among young people. Yep. Do you think they are rising? And if so, why? Or do you just feel like we have more awareness, more data on it now? Yeah, it's a good question. Are we just getting better at identifying it? Um, that one, yeah, it's tricky. Uh, I mean, my argument would probably be that I think as with, <laughs> as you probably notice as everything with psychology, it's a combination of both of these things. Um, as it should be. That's as, it, as, it should, as it should be, yeah, because yeah. then it just allows me to sit on the fence forever. <laughs> um, but if we take, um, you know, something like depression and so then as mental illness, as we become more informed and educated about it, as there's less stigma associated, there's still a lot of stigma, particularly in some communities uh, but there's less overall and so then people feel more comfortable approaching services in order to to get that and also depending on where you are sometimes you need that diagnosis in order to access services um, and so then that can kind of skew what you're finding um, because it might be look I, I don't think this is um, an example might be I think you have an adjustment disorder an adjustment disorder is when something really stressful has happened to you and you're having a strong psychological response to that and that is persisting for a while. But if we can address the stressor, then that response will go away. Whereas depression is this might not have necessarily been triggered by a particular thing. You're just sort of more predisposed with because of your thinking style or something to have these quite pessimistic, low sense of self-worth type views um so i think it's it's as we get more aware of it and we're um better able to identify the symptoms then we are diagnosing it more but then you also have issues like covid for example which is creating stressful situations that is more likely to trigger something like a depressive episode in people um and even uh, if we ignore something like covid and you look at things like job opportunities as a student might be coming towards graduation and they're realizing, oh, it's going to be hard for me to get a job. Um, I have this huge student debt that I need to be working off. Um, I was maybe forced to, to do a degree that I don't actually have much interest in, but I just did it to keep my parents happy. And now am I going to be doing a job that I don't even like for the next 20 years? Um, then that can create issues as well. So you, um, someone's environment might be uh, structured in such a way that they are more likely to have these types of difficulties as well. One of the exercises you had spoken about in the past, and I would love to highlight that now, is you work with uh, people and try to identify what elements they are accountable for and what they can take responsibility for and what they cannot just control. Would you like to speak about that? Or? Sure, yeah. So... Um, and you might be talking about like the responsibility pie um, yeah. or... Uh, well, there were two. One was what you can control and what you yes, can't control. And then yes. one is the responsibility pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but they kind of focus on the same mm -hmm. idea where it is trying to um, shift people's focus uh, towards what are the things that I can do something about in the situation that I have found myself in. So I think if we take COVID, COVID's a nice example of that where, you know, we don't have control over how this... Um, pandemic is spreading we don't have control over the rules that um, government will implement we don't have control over how much 
um, we're allowed to travel outside of the country. And so then when we get upset about, oh, the government isn't letting me do this thing that I want to do, you go, well, it's understandable to be frustrated, but if you focus on that, then you feel very powerless and very hopeless in doing that because you can't do anything about that. And there's nothing in life that we have absolute control over. But what you do have control over might be, okay, I'm not allowed to have, let's say I, you know, my wedding was planned and I wanted to have 500 people come and now I'm only allowed to have 200 um, in terms of the, the requirements that they have in the UAE at the moment. Then it would be, okay, well then... I have control over do I want to sort of restructure what the celebrations are going to be like rather than having one big event? Do I have multiple ones? Do I make um, internet access and I set up a couple of big screens so that people who can't come can still sort of see what the festiv festivities are doing? Um, do I choose to focus less on like, the public celebration of the wedding and I make it a more intimate celebration of my union with my partner and the bigger celebration will come later when um, when the celebrations are allowed to happen at that sort of size. So that's uh, so we try to sort of get people to focus on um, when we're upset about something, is it actually helping us to drive us towards problem solving? Because it helps us identify here's the issue can I actually try to solve this? And if I can, then let's focus on that. But if it's just, I'm very sad about this thing, you're allowed to be sad about these things. But if you ruminate over that, um, you end up, it just ends up uh, further exacerbating how, how bad you are feeling. And so it's shifting that, that there's a lot of stuff we don't have control over and that can feel really unfair. And it is unfair. Um, but there's also things that we do have control over. And if we can focus on that, then we tend to um, feel better because we can gain a greater sense of autonomy um, and control over how we then choose to react to something. Because, um, and I'm a, I've been trained in cognitive behavior therapy, and so a big um, principle that we talk about in, in CBT is that often we think about it in terms of something has happened to us. And that made us feel bad or angry or sad. But there's a middle point. Something has happened and then we interpret it in a particular way. And it's that way that we think about the situation that makes us feel a certain way. And that's why you might have it that, you know, 10 people experience something and you'll see 10 very different reactions to that. Um, and the way that we then interpret things that is shaped by our personality and our past experiences and our temperament and all of these other things, but we do have some degree of control over how we are choosing to interpret something. And it might be like, if I interpret it in a different way, and there might be five possible ways that I could interpret this thing. And so I might explore with a client what's different ways of interpreting this situation are each of these sort of valid ways because it's not saying we should be deluding ourselves about thinking about things. But if it's, well, if thinking about it this way is just as valid as thinking about it this other way, but thinking about it in option A makes me feel a lot better, then why not? So we look at it from a validity perspective. Is it valid to think about it in this way? Does that make sense logically? And is it helpful for us to think about it? So if, if you're walking past, if you're walking in the mall, and a friend 
you see a friend um, on the other side uh, of the walkway and you wave and he's on his phone and he seems to make eye contact with you, but he doesn't wave back. Yeah? What's one way you could interpret that? Annoyed, angry, maybe. Right. But what's yeah. the thought that gets you annoyed? How would you interpret it? He ignored it? me. Basically. He ignored you. Yeah. Okay. And so then that, he ignored me, makes you feel angry right. or annoyed. Yeah. What's another way you could interpret it? He was busy, didn't, didn't look at me. Yeah. I yeah. thought he saw me, but maybe he didn't he actually didn't. see me. There's a million other people yeah. here. Um, so if you think about it that way, how would you feel? Fine. I mean, it's understandable. It's pretty reasonable. That's right. right. Yeah. 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 Um, can you think of another way to interpret it? Another way? Mm. Yeah. Well, he ignored me and he didn't see me. Uh-huh. Or he's just busy. He saw me and maybe he'll react later. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So he might call me in an hour and going, sorry, I couldn't. Oh, very good. <laughs> um, but yeah, in yeah. that, you know, again, because we're not mind readers, right. there could be 10 explanations as to why someone behaves the way that they did. He might be really, he's on a phone call and something really urgent has come up. And so he's, he's just too distracted um, to deal with anything else right now. Um, and so each of those is possible. And so it's, well, if I think, because if I think about it, he ignored me, I'm going to be annoyed the rest of the day. But if I think about it as, oh, he just didn't see me, then I feel better. Now that might not be true. And it might be as I get new information next time I see him, then that, then I can adjust. But for now, your if thinking about it. Your default thinking should be more positive. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, because that, you know, wh why not go with the option that makes us feel better if it's as valid as the other options. There? Jordan Peterson had this idea and I do recognize that Jordan Peterson might be not welcome at the psychology brunch table. <laughs> but Jordan Peterson's an interesting yeah, character. character. Yeah. <laughs> but his idea was that if you feel like there are things that are not in your control, the least you can do is start by cleaning your room. Right. And it sounded a bit superficial, but I think what he just meant was identify the closest element that you can control and try and improve your surroundings and you'll be in a better position to tackle bigger problems if and when you can yeah, control them. Yeah. Well, if also, I mean, something that's nice about chores like cleaning your room or doing the dishes or something is you yeah. get that immediate feedback like oh i did something you have something to show for it after those few minutes of of effort um and if that's and if that can help you create create a sense of oh like it's been the first half an hour of the day because there was a presentation given by a an army officer and he was like you know every morning make your bed which i don't do um but his argument for that was like you know within the first two minutes of being awake you've already accomplished something and that will help sort of set the tone for the rest of the day um, and yeah, and if that's very helpful, I, I guess what I always sort of talk about with people is, um, you know, there's an, because we're all very different, the way that we want to go about sort of addressing our own, um, anxieties and managing our own emotions or changing our own thinking styles, there's a number of different approaches out there that you can use. You know, I often use CBT, but some of my clients like CBT just doesn't click with them. So then we might use a different strategy. So it's sometimes an issue of let's explore and try things out. Um, and if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, well, that's also useful for us to know because then and we can understand why it didn't work and then that might help direct us, give us better clarification on what might work. But the idea is to build up a, a, a number of tools in your toolbox so that whatever situation you're faced with, you have some strategy that you could implement to help you deal with that. 
in that moment. Pretty, pretty useful. I mean, the most common technique that friends use is if someone tells you I'm really stressed, then the most common reaction is have you tried not being stressed? <laughs> have you tried relaxing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like no one ever yeah. thought of that. Just calm down. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. I never thought about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so and and part of that is also, you know, the way that um we we might think about how we interact with other people and I might have a client who's like, "Oh, I tell my mom that I'm upset and she says this and it just makes me feel even worse. And you go, well, have you told her what you would actually want her to do in that moment in time? And you're like, oh, no. And you go, well, what would you want her to do? Because she's probably, and we might explore like, why do you think she did that? And oh, I guess she's, I guess she's trying to make me feel better. Or it might be, no, she's just, you know, she doesn't care about me and that's a whole other set of issues we have to address. But if it's the intent behind the behavior is good, but people, they're also going to have their own strategies and they'll go, well, this works for me, so that's what I'm going to suggest for you. And if you don't give me any feedback on whether it is working or what instead you would prefer for me to do, I'm just going to have to take a best guess. And none of us are mind readers. That's another one that can come up in couples. Well, he should have known not to do that. And I go, but why? Like he's not a mind reader and neither are you. And maybe, we you know, this sense of, couples we should have this like psychic connection with each other you go no that's not Is how it really works. A soulmate? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's you know even um because you know depending on your mood certain strategies are maybe aren't going to work as well but it's okay to maintain that communication and go like you know when i am in this mood i don't want you to offer me advice for example i just want you to sit there and and listen to me while i vent and then after me venting for 10 minutes then i'll feel better whereas other people will say no i do want your advice um so give me your ideas as to what to do everybody's different so it's you know we want the people around us to try to help but it's also our responsibility to give them guidance on what we're going to find most helpful and then the way that you can communicate that might be a piece of paper on your door because you don't want to have that verbal discussion or it's having that discussion at a later time when everyone's feeling calmer i've had clients like couples and it'll be if a doll is kind of present on a shelf then that's how they signal to each other when they're ready to have kind of a, a harder conversation about things so you can get very creative about how you do that um but it's it's establishing that with the other person that's going to be important just before we move on to the next segment, I wanted to point out when you were talking about what you can control, I'd come across this very interesting meme, mm -hmm. which was like a flowchart which said that, do you have a problem? If no, why worry? Why worry? If yes, can you do something about the problem? If no, why worry? Yeah. And if yes, Again, then why, why worry? worry? <laughs> so that, that's, that's the best way to look at life, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's, um, yeah, if, if it helps, if because again, it's not like worry or anxiety are bad emotions. They are our body's warning system of, oh, is this something yeah. that I, you know, anxiety is, a, is your smoke alarm going off. Is this a threat that I need to deal with? So it's okay to have that. And our body is very good at coping with those short bursts of worry or stress. Um, and then, you know, it triggers our sympathetic nervous system. It gets us ready for fight or flight or freeze. And then it once we realize, okay, the threat is gone, then we settle down. Our brain, though, has not evolved to the point where it distinguishes between a physical threat where that fight, flight or freeze response is actually very good 
versus a psychological threat where that same response is often not so helpful. So maybe over the next few thousand years we will evolve and we'll be able to, our brain will be able to distinguish those two things and therefore react differently. But for now it's going, okay, sometimes I have to just sit with the worry rather than react to it immediately and go like, is this something, has my smoke alarm has gone off, but has it gone off because there's actually a fire or has it gone off because... Um, the stove has been left on a bit too long, so I need to tend to that, but it's my, my life is not under threat or someone's burning incense next door. And so there's no threat at all. Um, but I will go and tell them, Hey guys, you know, make sure you burn that out on the balcony or something, or a bit further away from the smoke alarm or something. You touched upon COVID as well. Um, in the past, in some previous interviews, you've spoken about there being a documented increase in domestic violence and abuse, especially during COVID. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Do you think it highlights the way we form human relationships that a certain period of confinement shows the kind of strains that exist within, especially between people and the spouses or parents and children in particular? Right. Or do you just think it's uh, it's uh, externality of the situation we were in, which is a pandemic, very anxiety-ridden. It right. was killing people and mm. you were told not to trust people. Or um, it was a very paranoid period as well. So what do you think it was? Was it human relationships or was it the pandemic itself? I, you can probably guess what my answer is going to be. Is that um, it's a combination of both. Um, <laughs> but also it does depend on, I don't think there's a singular answer for every couple where there is an experience of domestic violence. So for some couples, yes, it will mean there are already issues there in terms of a sense of control that one partner has over the other um, or distrust or this way of this is how we manage conflict by getting physically violent um, with each other. So for some, that was already there and COVID has exacerbated pre-existing problems. But for other couples, it can be that COVID has introduced additional stresses that they maybe never had to deal with before, like job insecurity, housing instability, um, financial pressures, um, risk about, you know, do we have to, if we have to take the kids out of school, what's that going to mean in terms of their educational progress, um, limited resources, the kids are learning from home, there's three kids and we only have one laptop and then I'm meant to be working at home as well as my wife. Um, and so then these extra stresses that maybe the person's never had to deal with. And so then, you know, they don't have those um, strategies that they've either needed to utilize because they've just never dealt with something as stressful as that um, or they've just never had the practice to sort of implement those kind of coping strategies. And so then we might realize, oh, this is something because, you know, no matter how strong each of us are, it's like a, a branch or a bone in our body. You can be, let's take the bone in our body analogy, you can be very strong, have very really good muscles and stuff, but if your bone is put under enough pressure, it's going to break. Everyone's got their breaking point. Um, and it's about being um, having that self-awareness to know what your breaking point is and so how to manage things so that you don't ever get to that point, ideally, or if you do, how to respond to that. Because some people are also shocked by their own response when they are in a highly stressful situation. And it might be like, you know, I shoved my son and I've never done that before. Um, and that might be what triggers them to come and see me. And they go like, I was really, I was kind of scared of my own behavior there. How do I deal with that? Or now my wife kind of looks at me with this level of fear in her eyes and I really don't like that. Um, 
or for others it might be, you know, this person's always been a little bit aggressive. It's just never been to that point because we've had other strategies to kind of manage that, but this got so bad that none of those earlier strategies were good enough. So we might need to learn some additional ones. One of our final segments is the idea incubator. And yes. this I ask my guests to share a concept or a theory or piece of work that they have that's had a profound impact in their life and they would like to share with other people. So in this segment, I would love to know more about your work on the appearance of multiracial faces and how that's affected by the names that are assigned to them. And you have used the case study of Barack Obama. Right. Yes, yeah. yes. So this was a, a study I did Ooh, years ago. Um, and that was part of my honors thesis, actually, um, which then became my PhD thesis. Uh, and so I was looking at, because my um, research supervisor, he's a forensic psychologist, uh, but a research forensic psychologist who looks at face recognition um, and how that's relevant in things like eyewitness evidence, um, immigration processes. So if I've got a photo of you and your passport and I'm looking at you, how good am I and how hard is that task to actually determine if this face is you or somebody else? Um, so he, you know, how um, useful CCTV images are at actually um, identifying a person uh, in the population and all of these things. So um, he gave me some different studies to look at uh, to explore what my potential research topic might be. Um, and one was a study that looked at, they took multiracial faces. So they were half white, half black. So this is a US study and they morphed them together to get sort of as ambiguous a face as possible in terms of, um, racial identity. Uh, and then they labeled the faces, um, in a memory task, they labeled the faces as either black or white. And they found that when um, the face was labeled black, um, when people rated the face, they rated it as having more archetypal black features. Like they would rate the nose as being wider and the eyes as being further apart and the skin as being darker and the lips as being bigger and all those things, even though it was the exact same face compared to when it was labeled white. Um, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Um, uh, but I thought, well, but we don't walk around with labels that, that I don't wear a shirt telling people that I'm white, for example. Um, but I, and then I thought, but our names are often very indicative of our cultural identity. Um, and so rather than let me replicate this study um, and being in Sydney, in Australia, our two dominant student populations are um, Asian, like Oriental Asian um, so Chinese versus Caucasian. So I thought I'll create my own faces. So I went around taking photos of male students around the campus and morphing these faces together with um, different software. And then I did some pilot testing to get people to rate the faces without any labels. Um, and uh, I picked the faces that were rated as being a very 50-50 split in terms of how the person looked. Uh, and then I did research on like the most common names, boys' names in China and in Australia, both in terms of boys' names, but also the most common surnames. So Lee in China versus Smith uh, or something in Australia. Um, and then I uh, randomized as people were exposed to these faces, they would either be labeled a very Chinese sounding name or a very... Australian Caucasian sounding name. So Andrew Smith versus uh, Huang Li or something. 
Um, and I was, uh, and I found sort of a similar pattern there that if you're, if the face was labeled with a Chinese name, then people saw this, the face as looking more Asian than if it was labeled with a Caucasian sounding name. And so the re people go, well, why is that interesting? They go, well, then that like that often the name is sort of your immediate impression of people. And that's going to sometimes influence how you then interact, uh, with that person. Um, and so I know like with my own name, Kieran, um, that's a name that's quite confusing to people um, because I know there's Kiran, which is Indian. Um, and then the way that I spell my name is uh, Kirin, which is Japanese. So if people have gotten an email from me, but also there's Kiran, which is in, in Ireland is a boy's name. Um, so people, if they don't see me, like through an email correspondence and then they meet me and they go, oh, you were not <laughs> what I was <laughs> expecting you to look like. And so you go, oh, and I've noticed like when people realize that like even the language that they've used in emails switches once they realize that actually I'm a woman or I'm Caucasian or something. Um, and so that that can help set the stage for how we then interact with people um, and how much we think, you know, there's this whole in-group versus out-group um, nature of how we how we interact with people and how much cognitive effort we put into um, recording their face to memorize it later because my research was looking at the own race bias in face recognition. So we're better at recognizing faces um, from our own racial group. So it's that whole they all look the same to me effect. So in my study, I used um, Barack Obama as like a case study in that his name is Barack Obama, um, but his mum's maiden name is Dunham and he went by Barry when he was at university. And so it's like, oh, like when he was campaigning, what might have been the reaction if he had chosen to campaign under the name Barry Dunham as opposed to Barack Obama? because that sets up very different expectations. And so I find that that's very interesting because if that's the case, then that is um, my argument, what I explored in my thesis is, is this one of those factors that contributes to how we then inter interact with people because even things like their name and how they might dress and stuff signals to us their cultural identification and then that, that might prompt us to put them in an in-group versus an out-group and then that prompts a series of cognitive Processes. What did you find? Um, I would imagine that why if he had gone buried on him, he would have been a lot more white people might have associated with him, but he might have also alienated the African American right, community. Right, exactly. So it's yeah. one of those hypotheticals where it would be again, like if you went from a purely like population size number, you go, well, there's more white people. So would it have been more politically strategic to have gone with that name? But the, the alternative is, you know, he tapped into that progressive population of, you know, we shouldn't shy away from um, our own identity and that it can be really complex. Um, he is mixed race uh, and that was up to him to decide how he wanted to associate and identify himself from a political standpoint. Um, and I think history will sort of help us look back on that, but it was, I think for a lot of people that was a point of, oh, like someone who is proudly identifying with his non-white identity and can still be president of the United States um, created like different expectations for people. And I think for a lot of 
um, minority race individuals in the US. I think that was really important for them. And what we've seen since him is uh, particularly amongst the Democrat um, party, but we have seen more people of colour um, pursuing leadership positions and choosing to go into politics. So I think he played a really important role in, in opening that door. But, yes, would he have been even more successful and avoided some really quite unpleasant racist attacks had he gone with a name like Barry Dunham? We're never going to know for sure. And there are going to be some people who are just very racist and are not really going to care too much about his name um, and they'll focus more on how he physically looks, the fact that he has an African-American wife, um, all of these other factors as well because, again, you know, human behaviour is very complex and so it's it's um, part of psychological science is we we try to control as many other variables as possible to try to identify the unique contributor that that particular variable might play but it's also being mindful of that variable never exists on its own and so it's always going to interact with other variables that exist in that situation as well. That is very fascinating, mm. actually. <laughs> I'm look, glad. Uh, yeah, I'll look more into it. Okay, so before <laughs> we move into our final series of questions, I'd love for you to interpret what we have done what with the Lego here. here. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think I'm, this is? For me, like, it kind of, um, I thought of like an exhibition center, Whoa. actually. Oh. Yeah, it looks like an interesting piece of architecture. And so you have like, this is the... Um, main function room where everybody comes in and then you have right. it splits off into all of these other um, private areas. So even this could be like a little lookout so you could um, admire the view of Dubai. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. So they can get the expo design. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, the main pavilion, the maybe the helicopter pad. For oh, the, the helipad. Suit. Yes, yes. Yeah. I like that. I'm not sure if these mean anything. <laughs> Started promising, I would I would say. Yeah. Maybe like that looks like sort of the start of like a Android type robot. Mm. Mm. Interesting. I was listening to a podcast yesterday about droids and how they're depicted in the Star Wars universe. Um it's very good. Uh <laughs> was it depicted terribly is what they're saying they always well, miss the targets they <laughs> talked about um how like uh, droids and sort of the treatment of robots is often used as um a way to comment on um like treatment of undervalued members of society and slavery and those types of things and so they were looking at you know um droids play like a position of servitude in star wars and um how they try to have it both ways. You know, we're meant to relate to them when we like them, but also there's a lot of droid characters who are just killed quite arbitrarily <laughs> and we're not meant to actually care too much about them Did being any destroyed. any droid ever hit the mark? I, I don't think <laughs> all the six or seven movies, well, there are eight, nine, nothing. There's one um, from Solo. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, that's the 2018. Um, I can't remember the name of the droid character, but it's a female droid who's voiced by Phoebe Waller-Bridge from Fleabag who is fantastic, um, but she is a lot more self-aware and socially aware and is like wants to advocate the um, uh, the freedom of droids and then she dies <laughs> in the movie and they were like, oh. Spoiler alert. So, yeah, yeah, yeah sorry about that. Um, <laughs> it's too late now. But, uh, it's usually spoiler alert. So. 
so yeah, maybe maybe droids are on my mind at the moment. So that's maybe why I'm yeah, saying go that. droids. Yeah, go droids. Okay. <laughs> so let's move to our last series of questions. Um, what are some books, movies, or people who have been a strong influence in your life? Ah, on my life. Um, Ooh, okay. I think um, in terms of sort of what triggered my um, exploration of forensic psychology um, uh, was the movie Along Came a Spider, which is based on a book um, uh, about a, a forensic psychologist slash detective character called Alex Cross. And so the movie stars Morgan Freeman. Um and that was kind of my first exposure to this character who is using psychological principles to try to get into the mind of an offender to try to then apprehend them. Now, I came to realize that that's not often, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, that's not the role of forensic psychologists. Um and he does some sort of profiling and when you look at it now you go, huh, like some of these conclusions aren't really um, validated based on what we know from the research around how helpful profiling actually is. But it did sort of get me thinking around like um, cr criminal behaviour is sort of an area where I find that um, diversity in human responses to be really interesting. So why is it that some person might... Um, his girlfriend might dump him and then he'll be upset for a few days and he'll get over it and he develops a new relationship. Whereas someone else, his girlfriend will dump him and then he grabs a gun, shoots her, goes home and shoots himself type thing. And you go, oh, like what, um, you know, same scenario and yet very different responses to that. What contributes to that? So that's kind of what got me thinking about forensic psychology when I was in my final year of high school going, oh, I need to decide what I actually want to do at university. And then along came a spider. And then along came a spider. <laughs> and then I also, one of my classmates in my year, his mum was a forensic psychologist, still is. I think she's still working. Um, and she came to a careers night and, um, you know, I was also interested in nursing or law. And so I was talking with lawyer. I talked with a lawyer and I was like, no, I don't, that doesn't sound very appealing. And I talked with her and I thought, wow, this is so fascinating. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, it's kind of the movie itself, looking at it now, you go, that's kind of silly. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time it was like, oh yeah, like, you know, criminal behavior and I do find that really interesting and I've always found human behavior I've always loved people watching really interesting and so then this was oh there's a there's a title for this and I can study it um and that just sounds so interesting and so I was one of those students who like decided I want to do forensic psychology therefore I'm going to go to this university for my bachelor's degree because they're the only um, university in the state offering a master's in forensic psychology. So I will like have them get to know me, uh, over my bachelor's degree, maybe get, um, a forensic psychologist to be my honors supervisor, which I was luckily able to do. But, um, during honors year, he was like, by the end of it, I'll have convinced you to do your PhD. And I was like, nah, <laughs> um, and for various reasons, because also got to. yeah, <laughs> cut to, and then but also my university had a um, a double degree, so you could do a master's and a PhD at the same time. So I thought, oh, that's an efficient use of my time, and sort of get it all done um, while I'm still 
young and energetic and have that motivation to um, and the discipline to do all of that. I working now full time. When you meet people who are, who are studying part time while working, like all due respect, that's I don't know how they do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like okay, so that I can avoid. I don't want to be because one of my parents friend she was doing her PhD part-time and I think it took her like eight years to do it and I thought no if I'm gonna do this let's just get it all done at the start so that I'm covered um and it was strategic as well in terms of depending on which country you want to work in um it's good to have a PhD it also meant it allowed me to look to pursue academic roles which is what I'm doing now so I was very happy with that choice but it meant um, eight and a half years of study and during my postgraduate which was four and a half years like having not much of a social life um, but that was okay because uh, I thought that's fine I can put all that off and enjoy all of that a little bit later so yeah along came a spider um, apparently I've never read the book apparently the book is better um, than the movie which is a fairly common experience from what I've seen um, but do do watch it I will. Mm. Morgan Freeman, I'm so alone. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you like your legacy to be like? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, We've only been asking good questions. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a deep question. What do I want my legacy to be like? I think like I would really like to be doing, um, I mean, I would love it if it, if I could look back and go, you know, I sort of made a contribution to um, the foundations of forensic psychology in the Middle East, um, I am res- I am sort of open that that um, might not happen, uh, and that you know is something that I've just got to be patient with. Um, but if I can make my little contribution to that, even if it's making the job easier for people who come after me, that would be great. Um, and I think with with teaching, I um, focus on like with my students that. You know, the, the goal is not necessarily about sort of identifying the ultimate true answer in a situation, but it's developing your critical thinking skills and being able to look at things from multiple perspectives. I think sometimes, particularly when it comes to some sort of political conversations, it can get very polarized very quickly and it's either you're right or you're wrong. Um, and I try to stress like it's it's very rarely as black and white as that um and you can disagree with people fundamentally in some areas but still agree with them in other areas or you can acknowledge some valid points in part of their arguments while disagreeing with others things are always going to be more nuanced than we realize so i want to um endow my students with that ability to engage in that critical thinking um and that things are uh, it's okay to have multiple opinions about um, uh, an issue uh, and to be open to hearing other people's perspectives on things. I think you're already making an impact and we have along came a spider to thank yes. for that. <laughs> do, you, do you often contemplate immortality? Do you think that's that, do you think that underpins your legacy that you want to leave behind something that rem- that, that has your traces or your impact? Um, I mean, it would be kind of cool to like define a theory or something and call it like the Hillier paradox yeah. or something. <laughs> um, that lives beyond you. That yeah. goes beyond me. Yeah. Um, no, 
I think uh, maybe my ambitions are a little bit more tempered. Um, I think what I do enjoy is the the impact that I have on my students um, in their learning experience, particularly with at the moment, you know, everything we're teaching them entirely online. Uh, this is a very different university experience to what a lot of them signed up for. And you still want to make that engaging and pleasant and insightful for them. Um, and with my clients, I love those moments where they kind of, they realize like, oh, like that's another way to think about this or that's true. Or, um, and so I, I always really enjoy when, you know, they'll give me a card and saying, you know, thank you for helping me through this dark period in my life. Um, the student psych society at Harriet Watt um, is sending out note, notes to their staff saying we know how hard you're working and they've collected little quotes from students and I was reading that yesterday and I was like, oh. That, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the students are seeing how hard we're working because adapting everything to be delivered online is very difficult and time-consuming and they – they see that um, and that, you know, the, the work that we're putting into is is working and they, you know, one was like, um, you're an inspiration. If I was going to be a lecturer, I'd want to be with one like you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so if that, you know, if that then carries on um, through those guys and then they use that um, in, and it sort of ripples out in that way, um, then I would be very happy with that. Amazing. Final question. I'd love to hear your answer on this. What do you think is the meaning of life? Oh, ouch. Um, what is the meaning of life? Oh, ouch. very, very interesting. Um, I think uh, there's a philosopher, um, Camus, who sort of talks about the philosophy of the absurd and that, you know, his argument is, you know, there isn't a fundamental singular meaning to, to life. Um, we are here through a combination of random dumb luck um and that has led to us being born and being where we are now um and so our responsibility is to generate that meaning for ourselves um and that is going to be different for different people so for some people it's about you know establishing a good stable life so that they can hand that on to their children to enable them to go on to bigger and better things for other people, it's um, a particular area that they want to make a, a contribution to. For others, it's taking care of their parents so that they have a long, happy life um, well into old age. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, that it's up to you to decide what that meaning of life is going to be for you so that you have a sense of satisfaction, fulfillment and purpose in what you are doing each day. And sometimes that means like I'm sort of slogging it out for something that's not particularly pleasant right now, but I'm going to have a good sense of accomplishment when I finish this or it opens doors for me later on. And other people will decide I'm going to live a more sort of hedonistic life. I'm not that ambitious in what, um, you know, career I want to pursue. I just want to be earning a certain amount of money and spending my time enjoying uh, things in life. And that's great as well because if we all wanted the same thing, we'd all be battling for the same jobs uh, and all of that. So, 
Yes, again, that might be a very psychological non-answer. It depends on who on you are. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's that's um, that can be uh, it. It's, it can help sort of free us from this sense of like um, there's no singular thing that you need to be driving towards. And again, that's something you have control over as to what, and that's going to shift as well your meaning of life between before you had kids and then maybe afterwards so it's not set in stone either and that can be very liberating and empowering or it also can be a bit scary um, and intimidating that okay no one's going to tell me what the meaning of life is I have to decide that for myself Um, but that it's got plenty of time to make that decision and you know in terms of what you prioritize at this point in your life is going to be different to the choices that you will make at later points in your life and that's very normal dr helia thank <laughs> you for your time you're very if welcome. people want to find you online or in person where can they find you so if you um google uh dr kieran helia harriet watt um then you'll see my profile uh, and that has my email address otherwise um if you wanted to chat uh from a clinical perspective, then um, you'll also find details of me um, on, at www.openmindscenter.com. So I work um, I work full-time at the university and part-time at the clinic um, at the Open Mind Psychiatry, Counseling and Neuroscience Centre um, here in Dubai. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. It was a Thank pleasure you very much you. for having me. It was a lovely chat.